is the future. Hello and welcome to the Alternate Futures podcast, where we chat with indie sci-fi creators about their work, the world, and anything in between or beyond. Today, I'm here with Peter J. Alden. Pete's working life has been split between helping professionals shape their career and work-life balance and empowering people with disabilities to do the same. He's worked with migrants and youth, as well as training companies, designing courses and courseware, and at one point, he was a church pastor. Writing under both Pete Alden and Peter J. Alden, Pete is the author of the Envoys Trilogy, the Doomsday's Child series, and the werewolf thriller Black Marks. His story D is for Death, From the Sea is for Chimera Anthology, was shortlisted for a 2017 Australian Shadows Award. Hi, Pete. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to talk with you, Edwin. So um, you're, you're not actually the first fairly religious person I've had on the show. And I, so I have to start with the, with the pastor part. Now, that, was, that has been a while ago. But um, so what led you to become a pastor to, to begin with? Oh, that's a great question. I think a number of things. Um, it's nice to know that I'm not in the minority, by the way. <laughs> there are more of us out there. Um, yeah, look, I think growing up, I had a religious experience at about 16 and was fairly, but was still fairly adrift or lost as a young person. And you know, I found a lot of meaning and purpose in, in sort of doing uh, church work around the volunteering space. Um, in, in my younger years, did a lot of kind of creative stuff, like, you know, I played in a Christian rock band. Um, we had the, the uh, corny name Fire Escape. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit of fun. Um, but then eventually thought, you know, um, probably in my mid-20s now should get a bit more serious about this. I don't have a career. I was just working in a, in a local retail space. And the opportunity came up to... Uh, to work with the young people in a particular church in Melbourne as a youth pastor. Um, I'd done a little bit of theology training, but I'd, I'd kind of run, run out of money halfway through the degree and just never went back to it. So it was a great kind of step into something that I thought I might like to try. And I spent about eight years as the youth pastor in, in that church working with young people, obviously. Um, really enjoyed that role. Um, I think... You know, working with young people has still been a feature of the different things I've done since then. But once that kind of came to an end and, you know, there was kind of pressure from other people within the church community to you know, get even more serious and become an associate pastor, you know, go up that next level in the career chain, the church career chain, um, do more adult things. Um, you know, you're in your 30s now. So I kind of did make that step and and that was kind of the beginning of the end uh, of pastoral work because it, it just wasn't me. So I still value what I did and what I experienced. Though, but, yeah. So is that sort of then what led you to the life coach direction then? Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's that's part of, um, that's wired in the DNA. You know, you are who you are. And if there's an opportunity to help people um, and I can do it, you know, I'll, I'll usually take that um, unless I'm in a particularly selfish mood, which does happen from time to time. But I, yeah, those last couple of years as an associate pastor, I was handballed, which is an Australian expression, sorry, from Australian rules football. So I was passed the responsibility for pastoral care of the flock, of the of the congregation. No idea what I was doing. Uh, <laughs> you know, not probably not the right guy for that in a lot of ways. So, but what that meant was a lot of people would come to me for counselling. Now, I wasn't a qualified counsellor. I was very aware of that. Um, and I wanted I, I didn't want to overstep those boundaries. But what I discovered at the same time was a life coaching 
modality, you know, kind of framework around. And life coaching was really about um, listening to people and asking good questions to help them discover what they need to discover and make their own decisions about what they need to do. And life coaching always leads to some form of action. So what tended to happen while I was still a pastor was the people who would just come into my office week after week, not change, just talk for an hour, you know, come back and repeat the same script to the same script, the same script. Um, when I sort of overlaid this life coaching framework over it, and which was had this expectation of action at the end of every session, uh, two things happened. They would either stop coming <laughs> because they didn't like that, um, or they actually started to take action and their life improved, strangely enough. So then when I left left the ministry, um, that became the next kind of part of the journey, was establishing a, a bit of a life coaching practice and learning more and studying more and practicing more around that. And, yeah, eventually that kind of led into a little bit of business coaching. And then the GFC way back in 2007 and 2008 came along and mm. sucked all the money out of our economy and <laughs> yeah. put an end to that business. But I had a good few years playing around with that and, and I think making a little bit of an impact. Yeah. So, so I'm just as a, a quick aside, I'm curious with the life coaching, then that is part of the training to end. So do you end sort of every session with a, with an action plan or, or the person would presumably decide the action plan? Absolutely. And there are different, different frameworks, but the, the one that I gravitated towards, yeah, was, was always, so what, what do you think you need to do next? You know, yeah. just as simple a question as that, or you started this session saying, this is what you wanted to get out of our conversation so, you know, let's do a quick check in what, what's happened right. So what's the next step for you? So it was always kind of, you know, putting the ball back in their court. And, um, yeah, and even if it was a tiny action that they made between then and the next time you saw them, um, it could be quite profound. So there was a young man who who came into the, the church office one day, sort of late in my, my time there, and um, he'd been using drugs for, for quite a few years. And, you know, he wanted to get into a, a rehab program, but to do that, he had to kind of go through a little bit of um, a process first and get signed off by somebody in the community. So that became me. And and one of the things we did was, you know, he said, well, one of the things that would help me if it would be if I got a job, you know, because then I'd have a bit of stability and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, let, let's investigate that, asked him a lot of questions. What, what emerged was that this, this young man was getting up at four o'clock every afternoon and then kind of going to bed at like, you know, seven or eight in the morning. And I said, right, let's change one thing. You know, what if, what if you, uh, so this is where I was being a little bit more directive, maybe the normal in life coaching, but what if you got up at a more kind of work ready time of day? So as if you were going to go to work. So I said, how about you for the next week, you get and try getting up at eight o'clock. And he goes, no, 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 I'll get up at seven o'clock. All right, no worries. And what I want you to do is for the morning, I want, because we had newspapers back then, actual newspapers, go and get the newspapers, jump online, find jobs, apply for them. Then by midday, you're done. The rest of the day is yours, but at least you've done something constructive. Well, he didn't turn up the next week. He turned up two weeks later. And, he, and we, when he came to the church office, we didn't recognize him because he made this one tiny change was just that getting up a kind of a work ready, you know, the other end of the day, it was better for his circadian rhythms, et cetera. And he just looked like a completely different person within two weeks. So oh, yeah, they, they were the things that I thought, I really like this yeah, process. Yeah. <laughs> and so how did that then lead to the sort of working with the businesses and the, the coaching and, um, and developing training, well, training companies, I guess, 
and there are various yeah, is that just the, sort of a financial side to it <laughs> you need basically to yes <laughs> <laughs> you've nailed it in one yeah it just became a reality um it was like what can you do what do people need yeah i can do that right. <laughs> Would you like me to, to do this for you so yeah yeah that's okay. basically it and so do you still um you still work with uh people with disabilities a, a lot now or so it, it's it's very interesting timing our chat actually because today was my my last day working in that space. Um, so I ran a, ran a training program today that finished today. Tomorrow I'll do the marking of their their assessments and then that's it. And after that I'm full time author. So it's it's kind of a great milestone at the moment. But I'm a little bit sad because at the same time, you know, a, a good a good week. Will, running a training session with with people who've got these barriers to employment in particular or, or have really low confidence and you see that change in confidence in four days or five days, it can be very, very rewarding. So, yeah, so I think I'll still, I mean, even just if in the future I'm running training courses for free for young people in, in the creative writing space or mm. something like that, um, you know, I'd still like to keep involved in some way in future, but I, I need a break at the moment. Yeah. I need to focus on writing and that stuff. Well, there is always the local library. I volunteer there a few times uh, every every week or so, but uh, that's a good place. Um, yeah, I noticed on your indie book showcase interview, you you mentioned that tomorrow you're starting your full time writing. Uh, how, yeah. how are you feeling about that? Then a little little bit nervous, a little bit uh, yeah, happy. A few. It's, it's the mixed emotions. I think mainly happy. I mean, yeah. this is this is kind of the dream. Has been the dream for a long time, and and not many people get to at least you know attempt their dream so i'm very very grateful for that very happy about that um yeah the, i think the only nerves come with the fact that really i'm back to being my own boss you know i have to force my butt into this chair i have to type words on that screen right there <laughs> you know i've got to do it every day make things happen so uh that that's the only thing i'm really nervous about Excellent. Um, well, good luck on the on the full time writing thing. Maybe we'll have to Thank check you. back in uh, uh, in a six months or a year and see how it's going. <laughs> um, so how so we spoke about your your um, being a pastor and life coach. And so how did your interest in writing then develop? Did it develop through that period or after that period or before that period? I think you hear most writers say that they they kind of always wanted to be a writer or there was something in their childhood that, that sparked that. Most writers, not all writers, but um, so I think, you know, I was that teenager, young teenager who was reading Jaws at 14 and, you know, books, similar books to that, you know, the first Blood Rambo book and thinking, oh, you know, wouldn't it be great to create stories like this and, and do this and dabbled with it, but never really did anything with it and then of course got serious about church ministry and that kind of stuff was frowned upon i mean have, even having a c3po head on my shelf like this would have been seen as all <laughs> you know that's a bit <laughs> whatever um so i really didn't touch it for for a couple of decades but it was interesting it, it, again towards the end of my time as a pastor i um i would preach probably once or in the main church service probably once or twice a month and one particular Christmas day, I was actually invited to give the sermon. And I thought, goodness me, you know, there's so much being said about this Christmas story. How do I draw a new lesson out of that? Then nothing really came to me. So what I wound up doing was I wrote my own version of the whole shepherd's story. And um, and really just wrote as, as a bit of a Monty, almost a Monty Python kind of comedy 
comedy story. And I just basically read, you know, acted and read out that story in the service. And people were coming up to me afterwards saying, that was great. You know, where did you get that from? I wrote it. No, you didn't. <laughs> I thought, oh, maybe, you know, that spark started to come back. Then when I had my, my coaching practice, um, I was writing a newsletter regularly for my uh, my clients um, and would-be clients, and that was nonfiction, but then started to get a few articles published in magazines. And I had a business coach myself at that stage, and she said, you know, this is really a sweet spot for you. Um, I think you might have been born to write, so just, you know, don't push that aside, you know, spend some more time on that. And that's when, and when I hit 40, I kind of went, well, you know, maybe I'm halfway through my life. If I'm ever going to finish a book, I may as well get started. So, yeah, right. that's kind of the meandering path back to it. And so was it always science fiction or did you have, because uh, I know your first book was, uh, well, I guess still science fiction, but post-apocalyptic zombie science fiction. <laughs> yeah, which I always find very hard to categorize, yeah. you know, those kind of things. Yeah, that, that space, all of that, that whole gamut from horror through to fantasy and, and science fiction um, has always been my passion. I would, I would love to write just straight crime thrillers, um, and maybe I'll do that someday under a, under a pseudonym. But um, for the moment, I'm having a hell, hell of a lot of fun just writing sci-fi. So um, so that was your first book, if I'm not mistaken. Was it Doomsday's Child, or did you... Actually, Black Marks, the, the werewolf novel, was the first one. Yeah, and then I went immediately on to the, to the zombie the zombie apocalypse. Stuff. So you started with monsters, basically. Basically, yes. <laughs> Strangely enough, I think I had to get them out of my system. Right. <laughs> there was something, something going on there. Yeah. Did you uh, and you self-published straight from the beginning? Did you look for a for an agent or anything? Or yeah, so I, I spent probably about uh, seven or eight years. Uh, you know, I had a couple of, and I still got a couple of novels just sitting in the drawer that haven't really gone anywhere. They're finished, but they probably need a little bit more work. Um, and had, so for instance, there was an epic fantasy that that finally I've got a publisher for at the moment. They're in the editing process, which is terrific. It's a lot of fun going through that. That book, I finished the first time I finished it, if, that, if you kind of get what I mean, when I thought it was finished in 2013. Well, um, Angry Robot Books actually said, oh, we love, I sent them, it was an open door period there, so you could just send in the first three chapters. Sent that in, they said, Please send us the rest of the book. And then the editor came back to me and said, look, we, we're not going to publish this and I'm actually gutted that we can't um, because if I saw this in a, in a bookstore, I would buy this straight away. But he said, unfortunately, we've got an established author who has a very similar book coming out. So we just can't, we, we have to give that space to her, unfortunately. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe this is okay. That book was kind of picked up by another publisher a couple of years ago, but they just sat it up for three years. So I took it back. They also had another one of my books. So, yeah, I kind of, and then I would have these experiences with agents and other editors who would say, I really like what you've written, or this is a great book, but I just can't sell this or I can't market this. It's not where, you know, the, the mainstream market is at the moment. So then I thought, well, you know, let's just try indie publishing. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very happy that I did. Very happy. Yeah, that, that, did. that is definitely one of the great things about, I think indie publishing, the indie publishing space is because um, the, obviously the big companies uh, and uh, publishing houses, they have their, well, they have to make their, their big money basically, don't they? So they have to go where the large audiences are. Whereas as an indie publisher, we can, uh, indie author, we can find our own uh, 
our own niches, our own audiences. You can build your own space, basically, can't you? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the time they're trying to play it safe too. So that's fair enough. In yeah. Business, I can yeah. Especially these days, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So you, speaking of black marks, um, so you have a Kickstarter then uh, coming up. Well, by the time this publishes, uh, it'll it'll already have started. So perhaps you yeah. can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so just kind of got to the five-year mark with the book and thought, um, I really liked writing that book. I had another, another flick through it and thought, this is actually a pretty decent book, you know, pushed aside the humility. Got a little bit, a little bit arrogant about it, but thought, yeah, it's it, it's missing a couple of scenes. I think there's a couple of the reviews said they would have liked a little bit more from the werewolf's perspective, um, and I thought, yeah, there's a really good spot for that to put that in the book. And I'd always felt that one of the one of the characters didn't kind of get a a decent final scene in the book to round out their story arc, their their journey. Um, so I thought, well, let's let's just try. You know, everyone's talking about Kickstarter. I've bought a couple of things from Kickstarter. I think it's a great, great, great platform. Um, let's try a different version of the book with you know just a little bit of extra material. So I'll put some bonus material in the back. You know, like deleted stuff that no one else will ever get. So it's like a special offer. Uh, yeah, and a little bit of a different cover art, etc. So we'll see what happens. Hopefully, yeah. people go straight out and sign up and yeah, yeah. help me get is, that off is the there ground. a is there a particular link to find that or is it just sort of search kickstarter for your name or yeah you can yeah, absolutely if you search kickstarter for pete alden if you search kickstarter for black marks you'll get a couple of things you'll get a band and you'll get a couple of other projects but mine should be second in that list if you put back black marks in um edwin i'll give you the the link as well if you yeah, want sure. Yeah, put it somewhere so. too yeah but that that's the simple way to do it just jump on kickstarter and search for black marks you'll see the cover you'll see that cover if you're watching the video but you'll see a cover that's you you go yep that's definitely a werewolf book <laughs> yeah i'll add it in the description to the podcast then so so people can Thank check you. it out if they want uh, so will this be a, a limited edition one um, yes then so it is yeah it is. absolutely yeah i just want to have a bit of fun with it Excellent. so the the very modest kind of dollar target that we're aiming at will just help um, cover some of the art costs and the the proofreading so i've done there's another edit being done but i want to do another proofreading just to continue to polish the work so people are getting really good value for for money so that's that's where the money's kind of going right and, and so are you using a, a local printer then for that rather than one of the big international guys yeah, i'm probably using a a variety so for for the un for us canada uk europe i'll, I'll use what are called Ingram Spark or oh, right. okay. source sometimes, yep. Um, because you can just get it sent in. And in the UK and the US, they now have the the much better grade of paper. So it's that lighter paper. Right. So your book's not quite as heavy, which I really like. You can't get it in Australia yet, of course. I call that discrimination. <laughs> but they, they tell me it's six months away. Uh, locally, there's a printer who's, who's done a, a couple of print runs of books for me locally here. So I'll just go with them. Um, they've done great work right so there seems to be a lot of these kind of very small printers who are happy to do print jobs of 30 or 40 or 50 books at a time um rather than wanting to do five thousand books which for us indie authors is a little bit um, out of the ballpark a little bit high a little bit high so do you are are, i mean uh, presumably the the print run will be will depend on the number of people who sign up for the kickstarter but do you have a, a sort of ideal number you're looking at 
other than yeah, the so the merrier. <laughs> yeah, the, the paperback I've basically set a limit of about 140, depending on which level you pledge at. So there's signed copies, unsigned copies at different price points, and some added extras people can throw in as well. So copies of the the zombie stuff if they want to throw that in as well. But yeah, so it'll be very limited. Um, the for the the ebook, you know, that's obviously the cheapest option. I'm I'm setting a limit of 100 mm. for that. So it's actually very low numbers. And I, again, I just want people to, you know, feel like they've gotten something really really valuable right. and helped me get that off the ground as well. Yeah, yeah excellent. Um, so, so then moving back to your sort of writing itself, um, I was wondering, so what you're, what you, given that you have or have had another job before, in addition to the writing <laughs> until tomorrow, what is your current writing schedule like? And then sort of how do you expect that'll change or once you go full time? Oh, it'll, it'll change a lot because um, <laughs> really for the past, oh gosh, you know, 14 years or 15 years, it's been sort of filling in the cracks of life with the writing. So whenever I can get, you know, a day off, if I can get an hour on a Sunday, um, you know, get up early before work and do a bit there. Um, for quite a while, I worked four days a week. So I, I actually still had a, a Monday that I could spend on, just completely devote to my writing. Um, but yeah, I think the big, so it was really just doing it when I could. Um, and I wasn't always as disciplined as I, as I should have been. You know, I know a gentleman over here who wrote a trilogy on the train on the way to work every day. Just sat there with his laptop for that hour, you know, pumped out the chapters. And it's a brilliant, brilliant trilogy too. But yeah, I wasn't quite that disciplined. So starting from tomorrow and the next day and the day after that, it, it's it's just going to be office hours, I think. It's just get into a, a set of routine, get into the routine and then tweak the routine if I need to. But I think this is where the life coaching comes in too, setting some goals for myself and then laying out those steps and then reassessing. And it may even get to the point where I have to kind of employ someone occasionally to give me a kick in the butt. But, you know, <laughs> people, well, yeah. did you meet your work out? So one thing I was wondering is, because again, on your on your indie book showcase interview, um, on the question of uh, constantly sitting and writing can be physically debilitating. <laughs> Um, are, are you taking that into consideration? Because your your answer when I when I asked how do you take care of yourself physically, you you answered oof. Next question. Yes. <laughs> so are you I anticipating remember, any issues with that? I remember that that question hitting me right between the eyes. So yeah, uh, that will have to factor into the the schedule that I've got to develop. Because yeah, I'm going to have to get some kind of activity every morning, and then break the day up between just sitting here staring at a screen because i mean i've been training today over zoom and i've been just looking at a screen all day your eyesight i don't know about you but covid the last two years all we've had been able to do for a long time in melbourne australia was just sit at a screen and do screen stuff and my eyesight's terrible so it's not just the back it's the eyesight stuff too yeah yeah for, so for, yeah for anyway me, i'll have to work something into the, <laughs> the schedule for for me it's been a, a everything basically it, it hit me harder than i expected but yeah the eyesight being in the room all the time on the screens has begun deteriorating significantly i also um misaligned my pelvis somehow as well so that uh i'm in physio um getting that sorted again as well <laughs> do, you, do you think that was from sitting or i don't think it was from sitting although i think sitting weakened the core muscles because i wasn't mm -hmm. doing a lot of exercise for like the last four or five years 
Uh, and part of it, well, that was COVID. So I just went out for a walk, but I didn't, I was sitting a heck of a lot of time. And then I must've done some, like, so we converted our garage into a, into a gym basically. And uh, I think probably somehow during that conversion, moving stuff around, I, I ended up doing something. Um, right. So it was messed up. In, in trying to get fit, you caused Yeah, an that's the irony, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, we just can't win. Um, <laughs> uh, so I was wondering your your writing strategy as well. Um, so you've also suggested that you you don't plan your entire novel out, but you sort of do a, a brief outline. Is that right? Could you take us through sort of what your what your sort of approach to a new book would be? Yeah, correct. So I've got, uh, I've kind of synthesized a number of plotting uh, formulas or techniques from, you know, a bunch of different people, um, really, really just variations on the three act structure. And within that, you know, so there's a heading for this, a heading for this part of the novel. So quite often, I'll just throw, I'll have that document open. And I'll throw ideas in under each kind of part, you know, section of the novel. And there's a couple of good questionnaires. There's a, there's a guy... Oh, I've blanked on his name. I think his name is Christopher Dowling or Chris Dowling, and he had a plotting book as well, which was based on Scrivener. So he actually, when when the book's finished, he actually gives you a whole bunch of Scrivener templates. But in amongst that, he's got some great uh, questionnaires. So sort of scene-by-scene questionnaires, um, character questionnaires, you know, and then the kind of entire story, things about the entire story arc. And I kind of picked a number of those questions that I that I sit down and answer because I'm trying to wrestle with at least knowing the main character or characters reasonably well before I start and knowing kind of where they're starting and where they're heading to. Um, so yeah, once I've kind of got enough to go on, then I'll then I'll generally write a first chapter or write a couple of scenes in the middle of the novel and then, that again, they kind of inform each other. So a little bit of creative writing, a little bit of going back and replotting, you know, toing and froing until we get there. Yeah. Go back and forth. Yeah. So my, my first Envoys book, I started in the middle. You know, mm. I started writing scenes for that in about twenty, I don't know, maybe two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, and then you know, in twenty twenty, when I had lots of time on my hands, just picked up those scenes and then kind of built around that, plotted around those those middle chapters of the book. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm a bit of a um, jigsaw puzzle writer myself. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's a good. That's a good description. Yeah, here and there. Um, so you do use Scrivener then? Is that? Uh... Sometimes I do. Sometimes. Yeah, I, I was using it for a long time. It, it's a great, great tool. But these days I tend to just have a a word document open with with um, you know chapter headings or mm, scene right. titles. So what's the name of the scene? So I can just jump in between another word document. Right, using the navigator. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Do you find then, uh, so it sounds like you find your characters evolve for you, because uh, some people obviously really develop them heavily so they know them cold, but I can't do that. Um, and I find my characters, I learn as I write them. And so it sounds like you're similar to that then. Yep, 100%. Because I'll think that, you know, Elliot in my uh, zombie novels is a certain way. And then I'll get to a scene where he just says to me, no, I'm not. I'm not doing what you want me to do, Mr. Author. I want to do this. Right. <laughs> you go, okay, I'll have to go with what my character says here. So that's when I think when it's, and it sounds so weird to say it to people, but when the character's kind of speaking back to you or pushing back on you, um, that's one of the exciting things about it, I think, is you kind of, you're having that discovery and that 
uh, fun, I think, that you're hoping the reader will then have with it as well. Mm. Yeah. It, it just, the way you described that a little bit made me um, sort of do a full circle to the spirituality at the beginning. Do, do you think, I don't know if, if, if you think there's a God specifically as, a, as an entity or not, but um, do you think such a God would then look down and perhaps uh, have a similar experience with the people that he's created? <laughs> I think that's, I think that's a really good insight actually. Yes. And I think that is probably at the core of a lot of, uh, not just Christian theology, but a lot of other major religions, theology, particularly monotheistic religions, mm. that and I, and I do believe in, in a God. Um, so I think, yeah, we, you know, that creative instinct has been passed on, it's been sparked in us. And, but yeah, I think, you know, the God who gave us free will didn't write our entire script for us, um, but gave, but did some kind of work around who we are and the world that we're in and that sort of thing. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of similarity there. It's a pretty good metaphor for it. It's hmm. cool. um, yeah. There's a lot of stuff that comes back to re- to religion. It seems more and more these days, isn't it? <laughs> um, for good and bad. <laughs> can touch a bit more on that. I just wanted to to go through sort of start with some of your books, because um, we've talked about sort of Doomsday Child doomsday's child um that was set in tasmania is that is that correct yeah is that yeah. where you you live in tasmania or in continental australia as it were I, I live in continental australia so i live just above tasmania so there's a straight you know like a, a whole lot of water between us and tasmania but it's just a it's a beautiful place um if there was you know, if the world ended that's where i would try and get to <laughs> to to ride it out because you could survive there quite easily but it's it's a very rugged place a lot of places but obviously it's been tamed as well but yeah just a beautiful place um it was more that i'd started i started writing the first book based in kansas of all places i've never been i've been to the u.s a couple of times but i've never been to kansas i don't even know why i picked kansas um and i i got into a mentoring uh program with a you know with an experienced author who wound up mentoring me more, more around Black Marks, the werewolf book. But he also said, what else have you got? Let me read a couple of your other manuscripts and stuff that you're working on, and I'll just give you some feedback. And he was really, really lovely and really generous. And he said, yeah, lots of zombie stuff set in the US. You know, why don't, like, you know lots of zombie stuff set in cities. Um, what, rather than just reinventing The Walking Dead, where's a great location that you could do that you don't see anybody else doing? And that's when, I, you know... This place, this place. Oh, Tasmania! Yeah, let's try, let's try that. And I'm really glad I did because it it almost became a character. The place became a character uh, in in the book, and it gave me an excuse to go down there for hot for uh, vacations a lot more to do fact checking and research. That's always nice, was, isn't it? <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Do you, do you think maybe uh, you thought to set in the U.S. just because that's where sort of the, the dominant market is? Because I, I interviewed um, a South African author big zombie apocalypse author uh bailey higgins yes and yeah and and she said i think she said might have even been kansas as well but it was sort of central u.s just probably because a lot of the market is in the u.s so it kind of sits in your head perhaps yeah in fact i don't think i even at that stage thought thought it out that intelligently (laughs) i think it was just that you know what we at the beginning i think of projects we're often regurgitating what we've, you know, what we've imbibed. So a lot of the media, you know, the US has done a great job of inculcating 
their culture and pop culture in the rest of the world. And that's mostly what I watch. Um, I don't like watching Australian stuff. I'd rather watch a UK or a US or a Canadian um, bit, bit of drama or TV or read a book, book from, from there as well. So I was probably just, you know, reinventing the same thing. And that's what that mentor was picking up on, I think. It was, you know, rather than just repeating the same stuff, Pete, why don't you try and find these other angles to get into it and then find your point of difference, um, mm. which was really good advice. Yeah, really good advice. yeah. So how did you get into a mentoring program then? That one I just applied for. Actually, I was very fortunate I got into it twice two years running. Um, so it was with the Australian Horror Writers Association oh, okay. and, and and Black Marks is not really, the werewolf, it's not really horror, but it kind of sits on the border of horror, I think, and paranormal thriller. Um, but yeah, you just send in sample chapters and they're given out to a bunch of, you know, senior writers who then they make the decision about which one of these people they want to um, take on for a month or so. Hmm. So yeah, that, that, as I say, I actually got in twice in a row with the same book. So Black Marks actually had two um, horror authors in, in putting into it, which was really great, really great. Oh, excellent. Very, very happy with it. Uh, and when, so when was that? Well, it must have been back uh, a decade or so ago. 2014, 15, 14, 15. Yeah, around there. Yeah, because I published it for the first time in 2017. Right. So it was a couple of years before that, yeah. And you were also you've you've been in another sort of interesting series, the the rise of the peacemaker series. Um, yeah, you have a, the, one the, full book, and then you've contributed to another one. How did you get involved in that series? I have a very good mate, uh, Kevin Eikenberry, who's uh, one, one of the core authors in that that series or that universe. And Kevin Kevin's a terrific, terrific guy. Lives in Colorado, um, great author, um, and we. We kind of started our author uh, career, I guess, or journey at around the same time. And and we met on an, in an online uh, writer's workshop in around, I don't know, maybe 2010, 20, 2011, something like that. And uh, just became good good buddies through critiquing each other's uh, stories um, until eventually we went, uh, I, I, I had an idea for it because he's, my, my science fiction is science fiction, but there's not much science in my fiction if that makes sense, whereas he actually has a lot more of a background in that. So I'd started writing a short story, got stuck, said, hey, do you want a tag team on the story? So we we published the story set on, a, on an asteroid. Um, that, that was quite a few years ago. Then a couple of years back, uh, Kevin said, hey, you know, I'm both writing for an anthology in this you know, Peacemaker universe and I'm editing it do you want to co-write the story with me? And in the end, I wound up writing most of it because he was just super busy. So he gave me the kind of guidelines and I would just fill in what he needed needed written for that. After that, because I'd invented a couple of characters in that story who were just side characters, Bang had this great idea for, for a full novel with those characters, pitched it to him. And he, he was the editor for one of the series within that whole universe because there's maybe a hundred books in that universe now. And, uh, he said, yeah, let's let's do it. Let's write it. So it was the fastest book I've ever written. Very, very happy with it. It was a lot of fun playing in someone else's universe. was easier in some ways, harder in other ways, but it was really, really good. Hmm. So, yeah, good fun. So when you say fastest book you ever wrote, how fast uh, did you write it in then? I think it was four months no, that's not from bad. beginning to end. Yeah, yeah. Whereas... Uh, 
I haven't got it in front of me, but one of my one of my sci-fi books took me about 24 years, 25 years. Uh, yeah, yeah. So so you sort difference. of pick at them and write a little bit here and there. <laughs> That's it. Yep. Yeah. Throw a chapter away, rewrite the chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you have your own, uh, well, space-based series, uh, science fiction series, and the um, the Envoy trilogy, which is set in your uh, Kuset universe. How, how do you pronounce it? <laughs> so I, everyone says it differently. So I say Qset. Qset, okay. Qset, yeah. Which is so I've, I've created this universe. This is what I've been working on for probably twenty six years, <laughs> chipping away at um, where we've got an early period of space colonization, which is mainly corporate. You know, corporations doing most of that with a little bit of the Chinese Republic. So the, the kind of communist China is still out there doing a little bit of space colonization as well. Earth, you know, the other nations aren't really in, that involved in it. So there's this early period, then bang, a pandemic happens. Interestingly, I was writing that before COVID came along and I published it in the middle of COVID. Um, so a, a pandemic comes along basically decimates all the space civilization. So all of those planets that have been settled are back to uh, pre-industrial and very tiny populations. So then we have a long dark dark age, and then eventually there's another emergent civilization that comes out of that. It's a little bit more utopian, um, and that's where most of the writing that I've done so far has been in that end of the, the history, the future history. So that's where the Envoys uh, series is. And, and Scrapper, you said, started slightly before the Envoys, the Scrapper being a free um, novella you can get from your website. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So and, that's, and, that's set in around about 2140. That, so, so soon, actually. That's quite soon then, yeah. Yeah, very soon. Yeah. No, I like, I like the idea that you've done there um, with having us spread out into the galaxy somewhat and then resetting everyone. So it's it's like we're going back to tribes but those tribes are on planets now instead of, you know, parts of a continent or something quite like that. Yeah. yeah uh, and then redeveloping from there. Yeah. yeah. It's also interesting that you've, because uh, I think it, no, I think it's, it's not a surprise. It's in the blurb, I believe, but uh, for, for the uh, third contact from the Envoy trilogy. So you have, you have in your backstory, then the alien virus that, um, basically knocks humanity down tears us apart and then you then you bring in another alien this time intelligent alien species to to kind of force us to unite almost um well i'm assuming that's what happened <laughs> i haven't read through the whole book maybe maybe but, uh, yeah. at least at least yeah that, at least that would be the hope anyway um um do you do you see like looking around the world i think a lot of people kind of feel like there's there's a need for some external force to to bring us together, like that that we will never properly unite without realizing our place and vulnerability in the universe. Yeah, I, I think that's a good observation. And people turn to different things. They'll turn to political movements. They'll turn to you know religious movements, um, or they'll just wait, as you say, almost wait to be rescued. You know, like it's just too much for me because I, I guess, you know, you and I, when we look at the forces at work in the world, they're just enormous. You know, there's only so much one person can do. But we've also seen these movements that start with one person, you know, and then snowball and, and gather momentum for good 
too. So, you know, I think there's always hope mm. as well. But yeah. 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 I guess, though, you have um, for every sort of Gandhi who brings in sort of and develops something in a large scale positively from from a small action, you then you then have and maybe I'm going negative again here for your positive, but you look at sort of the the, the the sort of dominant social narrative, I think in all of our countries in the West right now, which is sort of the progressivism, which seeks to unite under a certain banner, but then is incapable even of unifying itself and starts collapsing. Yeah, um, yeah. That's kind of another, another extreme, which, which, yeah, I don't know how to interpret that necessarily, but... <laughs> And I think I think that that's kind of a key feature that I see myself that that idea re- repeats itself through my science fiction a lot, and that's that human nature is human nature. Nothing's going to change it. Technological advances really aren't going to change it unless they're at some point that we can't even imagine, you know, in the future. While humans are humans, I don't think much is going to change. So um, yeah, there, there'll always be. Uh, there'll always be orthodoxy. I think one of the great enemies that we we face as a species is this idea of orthodoxy. And if you don't believe the right thing, then you're wrong. You know, if you don't believe what I know is true, then you're wrong. And if you're wrong, these are the consequences for you. Um, or you can't, or just you can't belong to our club if you don't believe these things or think this way. Um, which is a really sad, mm. sad way to be. So yeah, I can think pretty dark too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's a reality. Yeah, the extreme tribalism kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I would think um, for anyone who kind of feels like technology might be the answer, you kind of just have to look at what's happening in the world now, I think. And, you know, with COVID and, and you see, because I still get feeds, you know, from from all the scientific developments happening. And, and despite, you know, all the economic hardships that are happening and, and all the greater inequality we have now and you know various um disparity between sort of bottom and top that's that's increasing um we still have all these technological developments happening but they're going to become uh, much less accessible to the people uh in the lower tier of that of that whole structure and, and isn't isn't that always the way sadly it's, it's why i love movies like elysium you know the matt damon Jodie mm. Foster, Foster Boothie, because it really, really depicts that really starkly, that haves and have-nots, um, to the point that it's like they've actually given that metaphor of the rich people are kind of in heaven, like they've got, they're above everything else. They're, they're out there in orbit in their utopia um, while everyone else is in the dirt and yeah. dust and you know everything. And yeah. So it's, the it's, metaphor it's visualized, as it were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. going that way though as well isn't it uh literally i mean um separating the the classes as it were and then and then we literally have the uh the elon musks the jeff bezos the richard bransons um uh, building their elysiums essentially right yes. Yes, <laughs> in space in, in the heavens yeah. yeah yeah um so you um so you've told me that uh previously you also like to discuss sort of mental health in science fiction yeah, I think more just in fiction generally. In fiction, yeah. yeah. The play. One of the things that interests me and interests a lot of people, not just me, is the depiction of uh, disability in in any kind of fiction. So we often see, you know, M. Night Shyamalan will um, 
cast a villain with multiple personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder, which which actually is is arguably not a not a real thing anyway. Um, there's a lot of lot of debate apparently about that at the moment, but yeah, just that kind of vilification of so anyone who is a villain, there must be um, something wrong with them. So we'll just make that some form of disability. And yeah, you can I think you can make a case that people who do horrendous things, there probably is some uh, diversion from you know what's healthy mentally and psychologically but to kind of always depict people with with mental illness as being the villain or the villain is someone with a mental illness or you know in a wheelchair like like um i can't remember the character's name but in unbreakable and in those movies in, in Shyamalan's universe you know the general the the um, samuel jackson character um yeah so i think just you know sometimes we i think we just need to take a look at that and go well let's take a step back you know what? What if the villain had no mental illness, had no physical disabilities, wasn't neuro, you know, neuroatypical, um, but still did bad things for for whatever reason? You know, what if the the hero was the person with the disabilities, which makes them a more interesting mm. hero as well? And I'm kind of babbling, but I think it's just that that point of being really careful not to not to always follow this trope and this cliche that. That particularly Hollywood's uh, built up of, you know, a, a villain or, or or someone with a disability. There's something wrong with them, and that's their their kind of feature in the story. It's because of that. Yeah, I mean, there is a danger, isn't there, of um, ascribing certain attributes to 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 villains, as it were, or people we we, we label as villains, just because it also puts them in a category separate from the average person and you know one of my favorite quotes is is that the the line between good and evil goes through the heart of every man and you know it, it if we if we put the villains always in a certain category then it kind of separates it's, it's like separating them from us like oh i i'm not that person but you know of course you could be that person another well not everyone, but a large number of people could be that person under the right or wrong circumstances. Hundred percent, yeah. M- most of us are capable of some pretty horrible things. Just, just like you say, just by by the effect of being human, mm. you know, having that fault line. I like that that quote, that fault line that runs through our characters, our natures. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And villains, villains are always more interesting when they have um, almost you know more mundane or understandable. Um, reasons and justifications and motivations. Um, one one of the reviews I got that, that I'm really proud of. She gave me a four star review, and she said she'd taken. I think she said she'd taken a star away because uh, she actually understood where the villain was coming from, and it made her really <laughs> angry. And she threw okay. the book across the room. I was like, cool, because <laughs> at least I feel like that that villain is real in some way. Like, yeah, you can kind of understand where they're coming from. So they're yeah. not cardboard cut out. Yeah, exactly. Although I guess if you're speaking of um, looking at heroes in that regard, uh, there are some classic. Well, I mean, um, Disney Marvel has attempted to do one in the in the in the case of Moon Knight recently with their with their Disney Plus series. Uh, originally, that character didn't have mental uh, issues, but they when they re readjusted the character um, to the new version, uh, then he's basically has multiple personalities. Uh, which take over at various times, and then of course the classic that was probably based a lot, largely around Batman, which uh, in some versions is very 
uh, psychologically disturbed. Yes, increasingly he's been kind of painted as a psychopath. Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. just a, on the side of good. So, yeah, I'm not familiar with Moon Knight. I've heard, I've heard that. Um, it's funny, like even though I said the things I said, I, there's the TV series. I've only watched the first the first series of it, but Doom. I think it's Doom Patrol. So it's a mm, DC, right? Yeah, DC series, and it's a little bit more lighthearted. Off, that's pretty dark, but it's more humorous than a lot of other things. But there's a character in there, and she again has the multiple personality thing. Uh, but each one of them has a different superpower. So I'm not sure if Moon Knight is the same. But it was an interesting take. Like I was kind of like, oh yeah, I'll give you a pass on this one because it's an interesting take. But then they eventually, towards the end of the series, they did an episode where she was. Um, kind of inside herself dealing with all the different personalities and I thought as far as the kind of you know clinical stuff around what dissociative identity disorder would be it was pretty pretty accurate from what I understood and I thought at least they've given they've given her that they've given the character that they've put some thought into it and yeah but I, I like the idea of the different personalities having their own superpower as well mm, that was a really yeah. interesting take on that yeah yeah I think I didn't actually watch the Moon Knight series, but I've seen reviews about it. And from what I understand, there's one main personality and then there's one. So each of them have sort of different characteristics on the human level. And then when they become, so they, they transfer into the, to become the, the hero, which gains powers from the an Egyptian moon God or something. And, uh, and sometimes they can different, different, personalities can take over that persona differently so they express it differently okay um, so interesting yeah um it, it kind of makes me um not the mental um issues per se but what we were talking about earlier with the sort of the the, the vilifying um putting people in boxes and stuff and sort of then ignores our own potential and you deal with that a little bit in um i think both in black marks uh, and um, do I get the impression in Eventide as well, where you where you have characters that need to uh, they, they make certain decisions which they believe to be the right decision, but then they have to basically fight for those decisions. Um, yeah, and yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, yeah, it actually reminds me um, how how that line can you know when when we write fiction we write the heroes and we're like well those heroes they've done the right thing. Um, but I recently saw a sort of mini documentary about uh, corrupt cops, specifically in England, um, and apparently there's a large number of them. But one one set of corrupt cops is apparently uh, corrupted in the way that they they're doing the they want to do the right thing, but they do it the wrong way. So they'll kind of take the law into their own hands, right? They're like, this this person is a scumbag. I want to put them away, so I will doctor the evidence against them, right? <laughs> And yeah. so they've become basically a villain in order to to try to and do, do the right, right thing, thing, which is... Uh... And it, it's a fascinating... Yeah, and I, I love thinking through that. Elliot, the, the main character in the in the zombie apocalypse series, you know, he really has some pretty severe PTSD and he's he's been brutalised all the way from childhood right through his, his army days. And now he's kind of in this position where he's suddenly becoming responsible for other people and he doesn't want that. But he he's really just this really angry guy who still has that very strong moral centre. So he's very similar to those cops. You know, he's quite often doing very questionable things, but for him, 
it makes sense to him. And I've never really even tried to resolve the ethics around that. I think it's just interesting to look at people like that because they're really they're just like the rest of us. Those cops, you know, if they if they really do have that kind of moral center, um, you know, maybe they're doing they are doing it for the right reason. It's it's tough to tough to judge unless you're in it too, isn't it? But yeah, but yeah, it's interesting. It's a, yes. it's a line that's easy to cross, I think, and it will depend on sort of. In many ways, it depends on what your belief is, which kind of leads us back to the the spirituality religion part of this. <laughs> it does, and and how far you are prepared to to stick with that belief. Are you going to when it's suddenly challenged and you think, oh, in the pursuit of this, maybe I'm going a little bit too far? Will you then go, nope, I'm doubling down and I'm going to push on? Or you know, if if some things come up that kind of question really co- should cause you to question what you believe in, what you're doing, you just push them aside, you know, kind of arrogantly or stubbornly, or do you do you consider, I think that's fascinating to watch in, in people too, yeah. what, what their choices are when they hit those milestones too. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it, it's, there's so much that, that comes into those kind of questions as well, because, you know, if, if, if you're a, a police officer and you're facing those issues, you have to have a certain belief in the, the system, which we know is human devised in in our system which therefore is flawed and so the question is do you feel justified in pushing past those flaws in the system or do you feel that they need to be upheld and worked around <clears throat> to some degree yeah yeah and hasn't yeah. that that tension's been really well explored in lots of fiction i think it's, mm. it's an interesting one yeah do you uh, do you try to attempt to bring in spirituality or or religion directly into your books? Uh, yes and no. The, the only one that I really did it intentionally was Eventide, and and I think that's what you're referring to. So you've got you have a very religious uh, Christian character in there who's not the main character. Um, she's a, a support character, but she has her own story and her own arc, what I call an arc, um, but. For her background, you know, I invented a form of Christianity. I almost invented a denomination because I thought I've got the opportunity to invent the kind of Christianity that I'd like to <laughs> devote myself to, that I'd be comfortable with too. And, yeah, it kind of just gave me an opportunity to explore how that might then outwork itself in someone's life. If they wound up in a situation where they were in the military, um, they were having to make really tough choices in the moment, their life was on the line, other people's lives were on the line. Um, but also I kind of worked in some of that spirituality to the aliens in that story as well, without trying to say that these aliens are Christian, you know, but right. just the similar, like the fact that I was trying, I guess I was trying to say without really wanting to say it, um, that, you know, belief is a core part of intelligence and intelligent life. You know, we we would all evolve wondering where did we come from, who's up there, who's out there, who's in here. Yeah, but what's the point of all this? What's my moral centre? What's my certainty? So, yeah, that, those are the kind of things I wanted to do. But then I wrote other stories like the Doomsday's Child series where I just made sure I didn't include it because I didn't want to become that religious guy. Mm. You know, I didn't think it fit in that in that series, in that world at all. So, yeah. Do you have any um, intention or do you think it might happen as you move into your your um qset universe uh and start building presumably you'll be building more books into that universe 
Absolutely. Um, do, you, do you feel you may uh, address sort of larger issues or build in some kind of larger, um, I don't know, presence, let's say, <laughs> within the, within the at some point, or, or is it not on the radar at all? It, yeah, it's a great question. It's not on the radar. Um, I I tend to if we if we go back to what you said before about you know people being these tiny beings up against these you know monumental forces and kind of waiting for other people to rescue them and things like that too or intervene. You know, the thing that fascinates me, and I think I do in my storytelling, is is pick those tiny people who are in the middle of you know huge events and just follow through what they have to think and do and what they how they would react in those situations. So some of those characters will have a variety of um, faith-based beliefs. Some of, the, some of them will be completely atheistic, which is its own, you know, religion in, in a way. You know, it's at least it's a perspective on things. But I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't want to write Christian fiction or religious fiction, Um I just think that occasionally I'd like to use that to colour in the character a little bit because, again, I've got friends, particularly Australia is a very anti-religious um, culture, mm. particularly Anglo, I should say Anglo-Australia, is very anti-religious. So um, I've got a lot of friends who are like, no, no, the future won't have any religion in it. And I say, <laughs> that's complete nonsense. <laughs> You know, even the people who don't believe in God have got another form of orthodoxy that they follow. So it's just, it's a human trait. It's innate in us. So, yeah, so I'll just, I think I'll, to answer your question, I'll just use it to colour in individual characters without making any grand sweeping points about anything. Yeah. yeah. Well, to, to, to respond to your friends there then, I mean, when I was growing up, so I'm, I'm atheist, but with a sort of, existential curiosity perhaps if you want to frame yeah, it that way I like that. Yeah. um and as i was growing up through high school university etc i i kept kind of in my youth you know much more much more uh let's say seriously atheistic than i am now <laughs> so so kind of hoping that people would get more rational as i termed it perhaps uh growing up and um but found the other, like I went into science. So I was a biochemist um, uh, at one point. And um, I kept finding that, in fact, instead of having less religion as I progressed through my studies and, and the various levels and into science, I actually ended encountering, ended up encountering more religious people. So at every level. So one of my best friends in, in undergraduate was very strongly Christian to the point where he had the sermons from his, his church out of city uh sent to him so he could watch them because he didn't like the church that he was going to his the people he was with was yeah, going right. were going to where we were and then um when i went to graduate school um it was probably a quarter of the lab i was in uh was fairly seriously religious and that's that was a fairly big lab so including uh, one lab where i think probably like 80 percent of the people were religious to sort of um born in that case born again baptism I think was was yeah. the common one there, but um, but just I, I just I was constantly shocked um, to be honest because <laughs> I, I expected it to be more atheistic the higher I went up, but I found yeah. the opposite. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't I don't think it'll ever change. No, um, and and from my own point of view now, I mean, my own perspective and interests with regards to science fiction is, um, and even just thinking about the universe is what I like is the. Um, 
the kind of I don't know Russian doll model I suppose you know I, I like this idea of of these shells and as you increase so we have our, our level of intelligence and then you know beyond that what is there and because we don't know much about the universe we're finding out weird things all the time about it and, and so I I don't like I, I look at it brought up in, in one of the previous um, interviews I've done the idea that what if God is is an artificial intelligence essentially right I mean at some point it could it could happen um and so just you know you never know what these various levels uh that yeah and i think that's the thing that we don't know what we don't know and that thought should keep all of us very humble <laughs> exactly yeah. everyone who thinks that they're right or they're very certain they've got a really certain base yeah but you don't know what you don't know as you say the universe is a very big place it's largely unknown yeah the degree to which we don't know anything is is staggering isn't it staggering yeah i agree yeah. maybe um because it is getting quite late over where you are i think so so we'll move on to yeah, this uh, 1 30 in the morning yeah. <laughs> um we'll go through the lightning round if you're still awake enough to to do that and Let, then the uh, let's the rock questions, let's do it and then the the revenge of the muse so uh so first we'll start with the lightning round this is uh five questions sort of the a or b answers um you can interpret them however you want, um, and we'll just go from there. If if you if one of them is just off your radar entirely, I have a couple of spare ones as well, so you can just let me know. Uh, so first question I have then, since we were speaking of of villains a little bit, uh, was the um, the Borg or the Empire? Oh, Borg. Or I think definitely Borg. Yeah. Any reason why you like the Borg? I I just think they were a wonderful creation. Um, they were, I and mean, they were riffing off things that other people had created, but yeah, they're just really interesting and they've gone in interesting directions with them. It's what it's one of the most fascinating and uh coherent streams through the Star Trek universe, like it actually holds together, and they're just a, a very interesting race, yeah, yeah. Awesome. So and they look cool, they look cool. <laughs> sticking with the villain theme, uh, Darth Vader or Agent Smith. Oh, that is, that's rough. When I was younger, I definitely would have said Darth Vader, but I'm going Agent Smith. Um, again, I think he was an inspired character, inspired performance. Um, that, yeah, Agent Smith. Yep. And, and he's kind of relatable because he's got that bureaucratic thing right. going on. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the real villainy. <laughs> yeah, bureaucracy, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, moving a bit more spiritual, uh, the metaverse or the astral plane? Oh, I'm not sure what you mean by the question. So, as in, so the metaverse, you know what that is intended. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the astral plane. So if you've seen the Doctor Strange movie, um, okay, yeah, uh, yeah, I think I'd go the astral plane. Yeah, uh, I have the it's, personal it's, feeling it's... that we're creating our own astral plane with VR, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> we, we will. I don't know if I'll live to see it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number four, then, um, 1984 or Brave New World? Oh, 1984, hands down. And yeah. is that in terms yeah. of the writing of the book or the which one you'd rather live in? <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. I don't know. I don't think I'd want to live in either of them, <laughs> to be honest. Um, no, the writing of the book, I think, um, again, his his uh, prescience in, in almost predicting you know, 2020, 
right. was just astounding. And it's very well written. It's a very well written book. Whereas Aldous Huxley, uh, I don't know, didn't do it for me. <laughs> okay. It might be because I, I had we had to do that book in English literature in senior high school. It right. might that'll always brave you. Yeah. That might be why I hate it so much. But yeah, <laughs> that'll always turn you off of a book. <laughs> uh, number five then last one is Soylent Green or Running Man oh no, that's tough um, I think Running Man right. I think Running Man I think it was a again that was kind of um, picking ahead of time the kind of reality TV competition stuff we see these days like a game like a, you know a game like that is quite possible yeah, yeah sadly. quite believable <laughs> yeah sadly I mean, more so yes uh, so the the next section then is the two big questions, and uh, we'll try and not keep you awake a huge a lot much <laughs> usually a lot longer. All good, um, all good. But I was curious your perspective if if you were asked for your input um, into a necessary quality of life features uh, on uh, an extraterrestrial colony which it should be included in an extraterrestrial colony. Um, this could be a planetary one or an orbital one. So what what kind of things would you suggest need to be there? Oh, that's a good one. I think uh, the first thing that comes to mind is some, because you don't know what the environment's like, but some way, so for instance, if, if we colonised Mars, it would be a very long time before people, it would be potentially hundreds of years, if at all, before people could walk in the open air, if we were terraforming, if that was even possible. So some where that they could go to actually feel like they were outdoors. Um, and even in a space station or something like that, I think just that feeling of, even if it's a hologram, you know, like a Star Trek holodeck that you feel like you're outside, you've got the sun on your skin, you know, the wind in your hair against your skin, um, the soil underneath your bare toes. Yeah, something like that. And I think, you know, community spaces where, you know, life um, invites people or lifestyle invites people to come together and enjoy each other's company. So whatever that looks like, you know, rather than just kind of excluding people or, getting people into just solitary, you know, rooms or dividing people into tribes, like you said, but yeah, that, that common ground and common space for people. Right. Some, somewhere you can kind of feel like uh, uh, an actual human in a part of a community rather than just a cog in the wheel building this colony, yeah. basically. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I think you may have uh, uh, mostly answered the next one. Um but I'll ask it anyway, and we can sort of maybe summarize it or, or expand on it. And that was, um, so do you think that alien spirituality would be fundamentally similar to ours, uh, assuming that the aliens were, I'm, I'm assuming they're sort of structural, like physical aliens rather than energy beings or something? Uh, or do you think they'd be wildly different? Like, would they have similar elements to their spirituality? Oh, the, well, the, the devout Christian in me says it would be exactly the same as ours. <laughs> Um, I one of the things I love reading is um, just exploring how religion might be different, spirituality might be different with with different evolution, you know, di different senses, mm. um, different different worldviews. So I, yeah, I personally think it would be there'd be some commonality, but I also think it would have its own flavor because really all of us are trying to find some form of truth, you know, and some answers to the questions that are existential stuff and you know we're really really all asking very similar questions or most of us are anyway so um the aliens are obviously going to come at that very differently because they're not human so yeah 
but fundamentally similar questions you, you think yeah I think which the makes questions sense would be similar yeah. yes yeah. Yeah. excellent um so the last segment uh before i let you go to bed uh, <laughs> is <laughs> is the revenge of the muse um uh, so for my listeners the the cubes and the and and the story or whatever the writing piece is for this season will be included on my alternatefutures.co.uk website. Um, I believe I rolled, uh, create a brief synopsis of an original story for you. Does that sound like I... That's what I've done. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so perhaps you could just, uh, you could um, read what you've written and then, uh, and then we can sort of discuss the cube images that you had and how they informed your writing. No worries. Love to do that. It's about 150 words and I, and I took it as like a setup for a story. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so hopefully that's what you're expecting. Yeah. So <clears throat> trying to get my voice working at 1 30 in the morning. Yeah. So Fanez is a droid overseer, the supervisor commanding an army of nanites aboard a colony ship. The great ship has arrived in the Trappist one star system. And Fanez, like his mythical character namesake, emerges from the shell that's kept him secure through several hundred years of transit. With a payload of 14,000 human colonist in, colonists in storage capsules inside the great ship's frame, it's time for Fanez's nanites to commence their mission to reassemble the colonists and upgrade them to face the peculiar conditions of life on Trappist-1's planets. But an update, there's always a but, but an update from the nanites assigned to capsule 9990 causes Fanez to look more closely at what's happening inside that capsule. The droid is horrified because this cohort of nanites have glitched, reconstituting capsule 9990's occupant based on flawed data. What they've been constructing in there is life, but the droid isn't sure it qualifies as human. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. No, I like a lot about that. Um, do you feel like if, so one of the big questions when we go out into, as we're hopefully going to go out into space is how we'll do it. Um, and you've kind of combined a bunch of ideas in this one, haven't you? With sort of a robotic ships, uh, the nanites, then re rebuilding humans in a way that fits the environment. I, I quite like that as an interesting idea. I was kind of, the, the the story cubes just gave me that idea of actually recreating the humans from, um, the, what would you call it, like the ingredients of, I'm sorry, my brain's not working this <laughs> yeah, time in the morning, <laughs> but, you know, the, the kind of basic source material for humanity. Oh, okay. um, and I hadn't fleshed it out any more than that, but right. that was just the idea that I got was that they're actually remaking them from scratch. So they are um, building them up from sort of basic components then. Yeah, basic components. Okay. Basic. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm curious if you have the cubes there. Um, uh, well, the hero cube. Yeah, take me through that because I'm curious how you got there from. Uh... <laughs> so it was such a, like I just sat there staring at these for a while, but I love this as an exercise. So he was, he looked to me like this little guy who was bearing this heavy load. He had this big, big rock um, on top of him. And there's lots of directions I could have gone with that. But and I kind of came back to it, but I think that that was the Fanez character um, was that it was this droid with all this responsibility for um, for all these colonists and for the mission and you know all the nanites doing all these things. So, um, but and he's quite capable of it. But it was a lot, it's a lot for him to bear, uh, which which kind of makes you feel for him a little bit. I think in in my mind as the protagonist, yeah. So the the load I took to mean um, responsibility. 
Right. So so the action one, I, I'm not sure I can even. Can oh, that's that, is that like the rebuilding then? Uh, it looks yeah. like a pencil with a. So there's this big something. hand with a pencil. And my first thought was like the, the spiritual thing was like God, you know, drawing a, a human being. So that was that was that thing of, you know, what if that was um, creating a human from scratch or a person from scratch or reconstituting them from from parts, you know, because you could kind of. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that that's that's just where that led to. Right. It's just that idea. Yeah. And the setting it looks like a, a pill to me. Is that is that did you take that as a pill or a spaceship? Yeah. So. I did, yeah. So these these last two, I wasn't quite sure what they were. So that, that's the way I interpreted it. It looked like a capsule, you know, like you would take. So then the capsule came into the story in that, you know, Fanez, the droid, came out of one that kept him safe. But you also had these little capsules all through the inside of the ship. So I just had the idea of a big barrel with these kind of capsules all the way through it. And, yeah, they are kind of keeping the parts of each colonist safe and ready for... Um, whatever happens at the other end. Yeah. All right, and then and then the fourth one would be a spaceship. Presumably, that was the the ship. So the, oh, I could okay. not work out what that was. I'll tell you how I interpret it. To me, that looks like the the eggs in the Aliens franchise. Right. Okay. That the face huggers come out of. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I went with. That was where the kind of idea of you know what because when the in the first Alien movie, when you see that egg, you've got no idea what's in it. The first time you watch it, and that was that just that idea of there's a little bit of foreboding around, you know, when when Fanez actually opens the capsule, what's going to come out? Is it going to be a Frankenstein's monster? Is it going to be something completely out? Like what is what is going on within that? What's going to come out of it? Um, is it dangerous or is it just something really really tragic or what is it? Um, so, um, what you've written so far, then would this sort of be the kind of um, the way you would approach a story with this? And how much sort of how much more would you write uh, before you started writing uh, the actual novel? Then, yeah, I, I think I would do a little bit of uh, from this point. I would do a bit of research. So, because I just plucked the Trappist one star system out of a list of nearby star systems, right. and my very cursory reading of the planetary system was it looks fascinating. But I've got a you know a scientist friend who I'd want to run that by um, just to make sure I'm not doing anything wrong, but also look for the opportunities within that and try and get the science reasonably right for that one. Um, because then that, that kind of informs the story as well in terms of how they're developing these colonists to survive. Because I believe in that star system, you've got a bunch of planets packed in really closely and they're passing each other very regularly. So there'd be all sorts of gravitational field or effects, I'm guessing, in there too. Um, yeah. I've forgotten, I've forgotten your question, but I think I do a bit of research, do some very cursory um, plotting. But the main thing for a story like this that I'd want to work out is I'd want to know what the end is before I really committed to because I've quite often started stories like this, got halfway and then gone, I just can't work out what happens <laughs> next. And then they just go into a file and I go into something else. But this, this is a story I'd love to love to write. So, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, maybe hopefully we'll see it sometime. Yeah. Um, so I, I, it is getting late there, so I think maybe I should let you get to bed. <laughs> um, but before we go, perhaps you could just tell us, uh, so what you have coming out next, uh, where we might find you online and if you have, if you'll be at any upcoming events or anything. Thank you very much. Yeah. So the very easy place to find me online is just petealden.com. So Alden, A-L-D-I-N. 
like Buzz Aldrin without the R, <laughs> nice and easy to remember. Um, what I've got coming out, so I'm, I'm trying to publish a bunch of books next week, next week, well, that'd be nice, next year, I should say, uh, that are my, mainly within that universe, that sci-fi universe we've been talking about. So uh, there's a minor character in the Envoys series, um, Corporal Westerman. She's got her own origin story that I'm nearly finished writing that happens about 10 years earlier than that, really, really loving where the story is going. Um, there'll be another story that just focuses on one of the starfighters that's there and just an adventure around that starfighter. And I've also got a story set on set of a few decades earlier where that's that new society of the future is kind of coming together. And there's an aid worker, because I wanted to get away from the military sci-fi just for a, a book or two. Um, so there's just an aid worker on one of the poorer planets who uh, unfortunately gets uh, kidnapped <laughs> by the people that she's trying to help. And then all sorts of shenanigans ensue from from that. Okay. So, yeah. So that's that's what I'm kind of working on at the moment. Excellent. Do you, do you know when the next one will be out? Do you have a date or anything for that yet? Uh, one, now that I can work full time on it, <laughs> I'm hoping January. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. January. And then hopefully another one in February. So fairly close together. Yeah. Oh, great. Uh, so, Peter J. Alden, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for listening. Information and links related to this and all episodes are available at alternatefutures.co.uk, as are the StoryCube images and original content from my guests. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not share it with friends, writers, and other sci-fi fans you know? If there are any indie sci-fi creators you'd like to see featured, send me a message at podcast at alternatefutures.co.uk. Finally, along with my recent site hosting migration, I've been inspired to consolidate my various social media postings to a single place. So feel free to visit me on Substack at alternatefutures.substack.com, where I'll be regularly posting on science fiction and futurism, and where I'll also be sharing new releases from authors I've interviewed. You can read for free or support me financially if you'd like. Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me on the next episode. This is the future. Human error. Evolution. This is the future. Thank you.